it was in that moment that I realized that both a buyer and a seller had a need mm. and the current operators in that market weren't fulfilling that need for whatever reason. And it really got me, you know, really thinking about the secondary ticket market. And to be honest, I actually stumbled across this three billion pound opportunity. Welcome to Screw It, Just Do It, brought to you by Startup You, inspiring and supporting entrepreneurs to make a full-time living doing what you love. I'm your host, Alex Chisnell, fellow entrepreneur, Virgin mentor, and founder of Startup You, the regional partner of Virgin Startup, providing startup funding, mentoring, and support. Each episode features the stories from two entrepreneurs at different stages in their journey who talk us through their successes and failures. You get to take on board all of their learnings and none of the failure. Today's podcast is brought to you by Hayes, with the number one recruiting experts in the UK. Whether you're searching for your perfect job or looking to scale your business by building the perfect team, go to hayes.co.uk, quoting Startup You. Welcome to episode 060 of Screw It, Just Do It. I'm your host, Alex Chisnell, and on today's show, I speak to 24-year-old tech entrepreneur Luke Massey, who sold his first business aged just 17 for £96,000. Having invested a large chunk of that in his next startup, Five Tickets, is now valued at over £6 million and has over 200,000 users. This Airbnb for concert tickets is on a mission to stop ticket touts. Luke has gone on to receive investment from a number of entrepreneurs, including Matt Newing, Scott Fletcher, and also Richard Branson as part of the Voom campaign. Luke is due to speak at our first ever Screw It, Just Do It live event in Manchester on March the 21st at Manchester Central Library. And if you enjoyed this podcast that's coming up and would like to see him live and ask your questions to him directly, then all you need to do is go to the Eventbrite page for Startup You and book a ticket from just £10, which includes complimentary drinks, as well as awesome speakers such as Social Chain co-founder Don McGregor and Premier Parents founder Sasha Atherton. Without further ado, I would like to move on to Luke's interview where we talk tickets, touts and Ed Sheeran. Let's start up. Okay, so Luke, you've launched several businesses before you started Vibe. Um, can you tell us a, a little bit about them and at what age were you when you first started thinking about being becoming an entrepreneur and, and launching your own business? Um, so I think that was a, a double-loaded question, but um, <laughs> to answer the first one, um, Vibe, you rightly said, isn't my first venture. Um, it's actually my third. Um, I've had two experiences of, of, of starting businesses prior to this. Um, one was a successful experience and a positive one. Mm-hmm. Um, and one was not so. Um, and I probably learned a hell of a lot more from the second business venture than I did the first. Mm-hmm. Um, so my first business I set up when I was 17 years old. Um, it was a company called Mortgage Claims Direct. Um, it was basically a business um, that was helping people reclaim money from um, claims such as, as PPI. Um, it was at a time when the banks had lost um, yeah. and I'd basically come up with a, um, <clears throat> an opportunity. Uh, well, I didn't come up with it. I actually saw an opportunity in the market for, for actually being able to, to help people get the money back. So I was at college at the time. I was studying business uh, and finance um, and I was also working part-time in the evenings um, for a law firm who had actually set up a, a call centre, a lead generation centre, um, and they basically specialised in, in PPI. And I was on the telephones, uh, ringing out um, a number of uh, calls in the evenings uh, and basically asking people if they'd had uh, payment protection insurance mm-hmm. and uh, basically had a, um, a survey next to me, a tick box. Um, and if they met a certain criteria, we would ask the, uh, the, the people who was ringing if we could act on, uh, on their behalf to reclaim the money. Um, if they fit this criteria, we, we basically sent it off to the bank or building society and said, you know, we believe that the client we're representing has been missold this. Uh, and it was quite a hard slog at the beginning because the banks had not lost yet. Um, so basically it was it was very much a cold call and it was quite difficult. But whilst I was there, um, the, the, the banks went to court and lost 
um, which pretty pretty much meant that the floodgates had opened for payment protection insurance. Yeah, and um, we went from sort of closing one in fifty uh, on the phone of people wanting to to explore it to pretty much fifty percent. Wow. Uh, you know, every two people we'd call, we'd pretty much get one to sign up. Yeah. Um, and, and, and me sort of looking at that thought, wow, there's a massive opportunity here. And the restrictions uh, were very low. You know, you didn't have to be a regulated IFA or, um, you know, a law firm to actually do this. It was a, it was a lead generation business. Mm. Um, so I managed to save up £3,000 from the commission that I was earning at this law firm and uh, decided that I could do this myself. Yeah. Um, all I was doing was filling out um, a survey. It was very much a tick box. I was ringing people, um, and then we were sending them out. So I set up my own company, and, and whilst I was setting up this own company, uh, I looked at the current challenges the law firm had that I was working for. Uh, and one of the biggest challenges they had was when they were ringing people up, the script that they had to be ringing people started off with PPI. Mm. And bearing in mind that people were getting bombarded with calls. Yeah. The, the, the biggest challenge was people had put the phone down on us within the first you know, five, <laughs> five, ten seconds. Yeah. So I, I thought, you know, how do I get people's attention on the phone? You know, what's going to separate me out? So I decided to call the company Mortgage Claims Direct because when you ring someone up and say that you're, uh, you know, from Mortgage Claims Direct, you've got at least 30 to 60 seconds of their attention because they believe it's associated to something which is massive to them. Yeah, I bet, yeah. So that allowed me, you know, the, the entrance and the gateway. Um, so as the story goes, I had £3,000. I set up my own company and I managed to convince two of the girls that were at the law firm who were also the best salespeople to come and join my company. Nice. Um, I had £3,000, which basically meant that I had about five weeks worth of cash flow. Um, I was quite young, quite naive, <laughs> quite bullish and decided to, to, to go ahead. Uh, managed to get some office space in Preston Docklands um, and I actually lied to the local landlord and said that I was 18 um, <laughs> so I could get a tenancy agreement uh, and set out on the journey and um, it got to week five and we'd, we'd run out of cash because um, you know none of the claims were coming back no. in and still to this day uh, I don't know how it happened but I managed to convince the two women to stay on board uh, for another couple of weeks until we'd got the first claims coming in and and touch wood some of the claims did start coming in, which helped sort of alleviate the cash flow problem. And um, the, the size of the claims were quite big. You know, we, we were getting 25% of, of any monies that we claimed back for our clients. Okay. Um, so week seven and eight, we started to see some money coming through that not only meant could afford to keep the girls on and pay their wages, but we, we, we could then scale the operation. And, and um, they came on or stayed on not knowing if you're going to make money and get, and get paid essentially to start with, I take it. <laughs> exactly. So it was yeah. all about, you know, t- you know, trying to get them bought into the long-term vision that we, you know, we could do this and, you know, ourselves and they didn't have to go back and, and work for another lead generation company and, and they could have the freedom of keeping sort of 50% of all the money that they earned. So yeah. 11 months later, we managed to scale the operation to 12 staff um, and I got offered uh, a check for £96,000 to sell that to a, another firm that was scaling an operation um, that was that specifically specialized in pay, uh, PPI. Mm-hmm. So a week before my 18th birthday, um, I sold the company for 96,000, um, which was a really good experience. Yeah. Um, however, I sold well too early. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, that was the first business. And the second business I went into was, uh, basically a student platform. Um, I wanted to try and take on the NUS who I really didn't believe with, them exploiting students and charging them £12 a year sort of membership fee mm. uh, for them to advertise, you know, um, big national brands and Topshop and stuff like that of, of discounts. I believe that using the power of people, using the power of students, that there should be a free platform for them to access that would allow them to get specific job, you know, jobs that are related towards temporary staff um, you know, low skill jobs that, you know, that can do that, but also connect local landlords uh, and local brands, etc., that wanted to advertise them, but rather than charging the students for this, who were you know um, a, a cash strips and, and and things are tight, mm. I wanted to actually create a platform which harnessed their buying collective buying power yeah. um, and, and 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 sort of attracted to the others. So I invested fifty thousand pounds into a company called Studenthood, and the reason why I called it Studenthood was. There's an age between kiddlehood and adulthood where hmm. there's an area which is, you know, a, a sense of belonging. Only students get other students. Yeah. And only uh, students are, you know, are a demographic that are notoriously hard to market to or notoriously independent and individuals. And when I went into the sort of profiling of these students, it, it became apparent that 
75% of students go to an area that, that isn't from where they're from. And within the, within the first two weeks of them moving to a new area, they've already decided by asking older students or you know exploring the area that's near campus where they're going to eat, where they're going to drink, and where they're pretty much going to spend the next three years of their life. Wow. Now, just in Preston alone, which is where I'm originally from, I went to have a look at, U, at the University of UCLan, uh, Central Lancashire, um, and tried to explore the, the geogra- geographical area. Now, being a Preston lad, I knew that there was many other businesses, you know, local chip shops, local bars, restaurants that had really good offers for students, but could never communicate this to them because a the students have already decided where they're going to eat, but b there wasn't one clear marketing channel that they could do it to other than maybe facebook where they don't really know how to target they don't really know how to use it so we set up uh, studenthood as a as a platform and, and and started to get some local landlords some local businesses on there and we managed to get thirty thousand students on our marketplace wow yeah and the lesson i learned from um studenthood was um the fact that don't get on the train unless you know where you're getting off so <laughs> studenthood, although it was a great concept was ultimately not scalable it was a very top heavy business model yeah Uh, you know we had to it took a lot of time and energy to a get the students on the marketplace but it took even longer time to go out there and try and convince bill who's the local chip shop owner to part with 50 pounds a month to try and target students that are out of the area right so So, you weren't able to monetize that in in a reasonable amount of time well, we did monetize it. We, we, we generated 80, I think it was 83,000 pounds of revenue just from one city um, okay. for six months. However, it cost us 150,000 to build the product uh, and, and actually get account managers out there on the road and street teams to acquire the students. Yeah. And in order for us to, to replicate this in a number of cities, we would have had to, you know, take Bournemouth, for example, we would have had to take the same operation and, and, and set up in Bournemouth. Mm. Um, and, and, and this is what I call it, you know, it was a very top-heavy yeah, model. Yeah. Okay. And ultimately, it wasn't scalable. Mm. Um, so what that actually meant for me was that, you know, I learned ultimately that, you know, again, I go back to the saying of never get on the train unless you know where you're getting off. Mm. I, had, I had a very strong need for wanting to help students, but I didn't understand how I could do that at scale. I didn't know how I could help 2 million students and do it from, you know, rather than a top up, uh, uh, sorry, from the ground up, uh, how, how to build something and then and, and then take it down into, into the local communities. Um, and it was whilst I was trying to grow studenthood that I had uh, bought four tickets to see Ed Sheeran for me and my friends uh-huh. yeah. uh, using, my, using my debit card. Um, <clears throat> my friends sent me £100 each and I bought some um, low-level tickets to see Ed Sheeran um, at what was the MEN Arena, which is now the Manchester Arena. Um, and like any 20-year-old, something came up in the, in, in the calendar, which meant we can no longer go to the event. Mm. And my friend said, Luke, can you get us the uh, cash back for the tickets? And I knew that the Ed Sheeran event was a sellout, and I thought, not a problem. So I went to Google, and I typed in selling tickets, and there was a number of different solutions that, that, that popped up on Google, which basically allowed me to sell my tickets. Um, but having looked at all the options that were, that were currently out there, uh, I found two major problems with all the sites. So the first problem was that all these sites were going to charge me a selling fee. Yeah. So in order for me to get my £400 back for the insurance tickets to give to my friends, I would have to actually list them at £500 plus. So basically artificially, you know, it inflated yeah. the price of the tickets. And I only wanted my money back for them. But what also um, quizzed me with this problem was the fact that um, the buyer was also going to incur fees as well, which meant that at the <laughs> other end, the buyer was probably going to end up paying, say, maybe £600 for these tickets that I only wanted £400 for. Mm. Now, the second biggest problem, uh, if I'm being completely honest, with uh, what was currently out there in the market was the fact that all these sites that was um, providing me with a solution to get my money back would only allow me to do it if I committed to the fact that I wouldn't receive the funds until after the event. Right, right. Now, this event was in six months' time, and because of all these marketplaces were so fixated on the transaction and not letting the buyer and seller know who each other were, as a byproduct of that, they would only pay me my money after the event to basically guarantee that the tickets were correct and, and people could have entry into that. Mm. Now, as a 20-year-old lad who obviously had a lot of money in a startup that wasn't working so well, I couldn't really afford to give my friends their £100 back each and me for wait to the 400 to come in. Yeah. 
So I decided to go onto Twitter and I tweeted the fact that I had four tickets to see Ed Sheeran, used the hashtag Ed Sheeran, used the hashtag Manchester and said, look, you know, all I want is my money back for them, get in touch. Um, and literally within five, ten minutes of me putting that tweet out, I had three, four genuine Ed Sheeran fans contact me and say, hi, Luke, you know, I'll take the tickets off you. Can't believe the ridiculous fees that, you know, X side is you know, trying to charge me. Uh, so I ended up getting chatting to one person um, on Twitter via direct message. I sent him a screenshot of the ticket confirmation, and I also gave him my PayPal details, which basically meant uh, this seller could send me money in a secure way um, and reclaim money back via PayPal if if the goods uh, and you know wasn't as, as I advertised it. Mm-hmm. It was in that moment that I realised that both a buyer and a seller had a need, mm. and the current operators in that market weren't fulfilling that need for whatever reason. And it really got me, you know, really thinking about the secondary ticket market. And to be honest, I actually stumbled across this three billion pound opportunity. And um, what I decided to do was uh, research uh, keywords on social media of people that was trying to do exactly what I was. Yeah. And, and to my surprise, there was between 15 million and 25 million tweets alone on Twitter using the keywords need tickets, want tickets, spare tickets. Wow. So this was millions of people every single month using different channels to actually try and um, you know fulfil their need, mm. and the secondary ticket market operators weren't doing that for them. So that's when the you know the idea of Vibe Tickets came along. How do I build a marketplace that connects these people and have the same experience as I did? Yeah. And the fundamentals of Vibe Tickets were built on a transparency, allowing the buyer and seller to know exactly who each other are, with user profiles. Uh, social interaction, and, and then also an offer system. You know, what's really the, the biggest thing about the secondary ticket market is at the moment is you know everyone's focused on ticket touts and you know ridiculous fees, etc. And mm. the only reason why that is allowed to happen is because sellers are allowed to hide behind faceless resale sites. You mm. never know who you're buying from. Yeah. So on Vibe, that can't happen. We have user profiles, which means, you know, I'm Luke in Preston. Alex, you've got a ticket. Let's chat. Can I give you an offer? You know, and, and what we believe is that we've actually got the, the, the purest form of a dynamic marketplace because the ticket will eventually be sold for what someone's willing to pay for it. Yeah. And genuine people are selling at genuine prices. And if someone does come along with a ridiculously priced ticket, they actually get called out on the marketplace with our comment feature. You know, people directly saying, come on, Alex. That's uh, okay. Yeah. So Vibe's trying to build the, you know, the Airbnb of ticketing, you know, a truly dynamic marketplace mm. rather than, you know, building a, a just another resale site where people can hide behind, you know, faceless profiles and, and try and, you know, try the market for what it is and see what they can get away with. And has that all come from, you know, that, that initial £3,000 that's then turned into £96,000 and then you've kind of upcycled that into in, into Vibe? Yeah, so basically, you know, studenthood w- w- was a financial blow for me. Um, mm. As I said, I, I invested f- uh, £50,000 of my own personal money into that, but I also raised uh, £70,000 from an investor in Coventry. So there was, you know, there was over a hundred and uh, twenty thousand pounds that went into a new venture that, that that ultimately we lost that we had to write off. Yeah. Um, but when we came along with our tickets, you know, it was very much there was a clear need, there was a massive market for it, and I learned everything that I learned from studenthood, which was if I, if I'm going to be able to solve this, I have to be able to solve it at scale. You know, yeah. how do I get two million people on my marketplace buying and selling tickets every second? Mm. You know, it was it was that sort of thing, and and rather than investing in resource that meant we could partner up with venues or artists it was no let's start with the fan let's start with the end user you know how do we connect bill and ben you know seriously you know how do yeah, we connect yeah. people what does the marketplace look like for a seller what does the marketplace look like for a buyer um and and, and that's where all our focus went and and how have you gone about um scaling that luke is, is that by um essentially building the platform is that where most of the resources go into like getting developers to actually build that and then go out and and build the community or reach out to that community 
Yeah, so it's a number of things. Um, so we've, you know, we've we've managed to completely separate the the operation out of Vibe. So to go back to the beginning, you know, I I had this experience myself, uh, and 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 you know, it didn't go straight into a marketplace because we didn't have the money or the resource. Um, what it actually started off was my MVP wasn't a product; it was right. actually Twitter. Okay. So I created a Twitter account called Vibe Tickets, and the hashtag that we used was Good Vibes. So I wanted to replicate the experience I had on Twitter, which was a low barriers to entry and connect with people on a marketplace where, yeah, sorry, on a platform where there's millions of people, which was Twitter. Mm. And we created this Twitter handle, which was basically if you're trying to sell a ticket or if you're looking for a ticket, you can tweet Vibe tickets and use the hashtag Good Vibes and we'll retweet it, a free resource. Now, we managed to scale that to uh, over 100,000 people on our Twitter handle in the first six months. And we were connecting between two and 3,000 people every single day who then used to tweet us and say, just saw my tickets, thank you, Vibe, et cetera. And what that actually proved to me uh, and to other people that were using the service, which I'll go on to in a minute, was that you know there was a real need for this. Mm-hmm. And Vibe had managed to build up a lot of thousands of potential users already without spending a penny. It was just literally me wow. on, on TweetDeck manually looking for people who are looking for tickets or manually looking for people who are trying to sell tickets and just connecting them for free. Yeah. Yeah. So literally was, harnessing that power. Exactly. So it was, wow. you know, it, it was taking things that we'd learned. So in that time, what's really interesting is that, um, we managed to connect with someone called Matt, Matthew Newing, Matt Newing of Elite Telecom PLC, who yep. you know fo- followed Vibe tickets on Twitter and was really intrigued by the model. And, <laughs> Whilst I was on Twitter, even though I knew there was thousands of people that were using it every single day, I didn't, you know, it wasn't a business. I didn't, I didn't really, you know, understand where it was going. I just, I just knew there was a need and I wanted to supply that need. And I sort of got a kick every time I knew that someone had managed to sell a ticket or find one and not have to pay stupid fees. Um, but Matt Newin reached out to, to Vibe, the Twitter handle, and wanted to find out who was the, who was behind the account. Yeah. Um, so I managed to connect to, uh, connect to Matt Newin and we arranged to meet up for a coffee. Um, at Elite Telecom's uh, Chorley-based office, and when I met Matt Newin, it was really interesting because he's, you know, he's a, a serial entrepreneur, uh, doing extremely well in the telecoms industry. It was actually Matt Newin who planted the seed in my head of what Vibe Tickets would eventually become. Really? So Matt Newin was, you know, me and Matt Newin were just having a coffee, and Matt Newin said, "Wouldn't it be brilliant if every time someone tweeted you, you made a pound?" Hmm. And considering, you know, as I said, we were connecting between two and three thousand people a day. I was thinking to myself, wow, that, that's interesting. You know, that could be £21,000 a week. Yeah. You know, just, just a pound for every time someone tweeted us. We were saving people hundreds of pounds on every transaction. Mm. But what actually came out of that idea was, wow, we need, we need to build our own marketplace. So all this activity is amazing, but there's, you know, there's two major problems with this, which is, number one, uh, they're not Vibe customers. They're Twitter users mm. that are just so happening to use our Twitter handle. And two, because they're not Vibe customers and we don't own the data, et cetera, we're never going to be able to monetize this. Yeah. The outcome had to be a solution that meant we could do both of those. So I went away and I started working on a business plan. And the business plan was I want to build a marketplace where all this activity that's happening on Twitter is, is happening on our, uh, on our own app. And it had to be mobile first. So I started working on the, the idea of, of Vibe tickets. Um, and I thought to myself, I'd need, you know, again, really naively, I thought, you know, I'd need maybe £50,000 to build this. So I created this business plan, created this financial model, and the financial model was pretty much I need to go and spend X to build, you know, outsource and build the first version of the marketplace. Uh, and I went back to Matt Newin, you know, the person who planted the idea, and I said, hi, Matt, look, I've got this idea. I've, I've listened to what you've said. I, I believe I've got something here. The users are continuing to spiral. I want to migrate them all. Um, and he said, yeah, I really like it. How does 200,000 pounds sound to get you off the ground? Wow. <laughs> um, and I walked away, uh, 20 years old with a check for 200,000 from Matt Newin, which sort of helped me build the first version of, of our iOS application. And within the first three months, we managed to organically, we didn't spend any money, uh, any money on user acquisition and we still haven't to this day. Everything's organic. Is we managed to migrate seventeen and a half thousand of our Twitter followers mm. over to our, our Vibe application. Wow! So you haven't had to pay for any acquisition, all organic. All organic. So you know, wow. Vibe's managed to scale up to seventy-two thousand users. We're you know we're currently processing over one hundred and fifty thousand pounds a week 
uh, in ticket volume, then yeah, we, we we haven't paid for one user acquisition yet. So I bet you're glad you didn't take that £200,000 and just leave the country for a, <laughs> an extended holiday. Yeah, I think <laughs> the turning point was getting Matt Newin on board because mm. it, was, it was now something that was, wow, that's really cool. I love Twitter. So, oh, you've got a business here. And even though Vibe hasn't decided to monetize from it, you know, we're still in the pre-revenue stage. Yeah. Uh, and again, I'll go on to that in a minute. Is It meant that, you know, the, there's something that's here that's tangible, someone sees value in it. And, mm. you know, we, we took the £200,000 and the whole investment went into building building out our brand, our tone of voice. How do we, you know, where does Vibe sit in the marketplace, which is A, quite crowded, but B, is notorious for people that, brands that aren't trusted, brands that have no brand loyalty, et cetera. How does Vibe really define itself in that space? And then we obviously had to to prove the concept. And what the 17,500 users that came on in the first three months did was, wow, there's a need here and people are willing to download a new product and trust a new product. Mm. So, what we then did was we, you know, I went back to Matt and said, look, this is really working. You know, what do I do now? And Matt said, well, we just need to get more com- money into the company and, and build it on Android you know, huh. make the marketplace more accessible. So I, I met, went out to the Isle of Man, met up with a number of investors. And, you know, I only wanted to raise another £100,000 to build it on Android. Um, we managed to completely oversubscribe and we raised £140,000 um, to actually build it on Android. Um, and what happened then was not only were we accessible on iOS and Android now, but our user growth actually doubled again. We went from 17,500 users to 30,000 users. By by uh, getting Android? By by launching Android. By launching Android, wow. Okay. So Vibe was now at a stage where, you know, we, we've got a product here that is organically growing. Um, our number of, all our KPIs were aligned. So our user growth, you know, was in line. Um, the number of listings on the platform was directly uh, in line with the user growth. The number of successful transactions were directly in link with the number of listings that increased the inventory listings. The user engagement was directly in line with how much you've got in the marketplace. So what I was able to to demonstrate to, to investors at this stage, even though it was quite early, was the exact same thing that Airbnb, the exact same thing that Gumtree, eBay, mm. OpenTable was all able to demonstrate, which is... You know, we, we had network effects. So every time there's a new user to the marketplace, the value of that marketplace increased for everyone that was on it. Yeah. You know, more, more buyers attracted more sellers, more se- sellers attracted more buyers. So what Vibe was managed to demonstrate in the early stages is, is, is that value. Now, this what really brings me on to Vibe's um, commercial um, sort of angle. You know, I get asked all the time, how is Vibe making money? In the yeah, of course, yeah. But Vibe doesn't at this early stage because, you know, I took the decision from, you know, the very early days of fa- founding Vibe Tickets as a business to not monetize yet. You know, I had to demonstrate value for both a buyer and a seller and get to scale. So because the market opportunity was so prominent for me, it was so visible, you know, secondary ticket market and ticket touts and, you know, the resale of tickets is in the press every single day. And the need was so great is that Vibe's biggest challenge was not can it prove that it can make £5 off a transaction or £1 off a transaction. People have already done that. Mm. What Vibe's biggest challenge was, can Vibe build a product that people like and trust? And can Vibe get to scalability? Can Vibe get to the the, the number of users? Yeah. Now, what that meant was it was a, it was a financial burden in, in order to execute that, but we're operating in a winner-takes-all market. And it has been a challenge in the UK to actually develop this sort of um, business model and, and and this sort of approach because you know I flew out to Silicon Valley with the Northern Powerhouse and you know they absolutely love Vibe the, you know they believe that Vibe had the potential to to disrupt StubHub in the states and mm. how he was actually approaching the market which was you know if, if we're going to disrupt the resale of tickets we can't you know do it from the inside we, 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 what we have to do is build a social platform that just so happens that it allows people to exchange tickets. Mm. Um, because if our model was solely focused on the exchange of tickets, then all our monetization would be on charging buyer or seller at this stage. Yeah. You know? but it's not where, where the value in, in Vibe is, is, again, is harnessing that power and, and building a community. So that's where our focus has been for the, for the last 12 months is, is building something that people really do see value in. And how invaluable has been having somebody like Matt and also moving on, you know, somebody like Richard, obviously getting 
advice from from mentors like that are they being quite quite helpful in that regard quite active yeah hugely you know i can't strongly recommend having mentors on board um so how this sort of happened and developed you know we going back to where we were at we had 30,000 users we'd raised i think 340,000 um we were accessible on android and ios um, and I, I just wanted to keep fueling the fire, you know, mm. um, so I needed more cash. And I was in London meeting a number of VCs um, and I had a pretty long day, to be honest, getting rejections from a number of the, you know, we're not at the user growth they need, they need to see to take an event, uh, a punt. Mm. Um, and I was heading back to London Euston on the tube and I seen this advert of, of Pitch to Rich. Mm-hmm. Um, and I ring John, who's my um, technical director, and I said, John, you know, I've just seen this campaign of, of pitch to Richard Branson, wouldn't it be brilliant if we could get a consumer championing product in front of the original consumer champion himself, you know? Mm. Uh, and John being John said, yeah, but you know, you're not going to go far, are you? You know, what, he, he's not really going to like vibe, is he? So <laughs> me being me, I said, you know, so let's go for it. So we, we, we submitted ourselves to the pitch to rich competition and um, the first part of the, the Voom campaign last year was that we had to create a video uh, and then people had to vote on the video mm. and we, we put our video live. And I think, you know, within the first week we, we managed to have 12,000 votes and we got to the top of the leaderboard. Um, and again, that was what I went back to Matt and, and, and some of the investors I was speaking to. And I was like, look, this is social validation. People yeah. genuinely want to see something that, that completely disrupts the resale market because it's broken. Please listen to what the market's saying. Mm. Um, so we, we went through that round and then we went through the second round, which was meeting some of Richard's people. And then we got all the way to the final um, and, and, and won some money and, and mentoring. And we then went to Richard Branson's house and it, it, it was amazing. But at that time, it, it sort of dawned upon me that Vibe is going to really struggle raising money because of the model it's trying to approach, you know, a, 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 a freemium model in the UK. And um, why not? Uh, you know, solve solve a number of issues at the same time. So I decided to crowdfund, um, and I decided to get the very people who wanted to see this change, who wanted to be involved with the product, uh, to actually become investors in it. So I decided that I wanted to do a crowdfunding pitch, and um, that that was an experience in itself. Um, <laughs> at Richard Branson's house, we met two investors um, who I don't really want to say their names because they're quite high profile. Who was really committed to Vibe? You know, they just seen the whole pitch to Richard thing. Mm-hmm. Richard Branson had, 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 had publicly said that you know Vibe is something that's going to change the industry, and um, they said to me that if I went through the crowdfunding process, that they would be what what's called your anchor investors. So. Yeah. We wanted to raise five hundred thousand. They they said, you know, we'll come in and put the you know the first two hundred and fifty in. Mm. So I ring up Matt Newin. I said, look, Matt, you know, I've got these investors. I was really excited, really pumped up about it. And Matt Newin um, actually said to me, Luke, really think about it. Do you really want to go crowdfunding? A, you're going to have to give up your business plan. You know, you're going to have to tell people what what you're working on. True. Uh, yeah. And second of all, if you don't reach your crowdfunding target then you're going to be in a real sticky situation where Vibe's, you know, burning through cash and you can't raise any more money. Mm. So um, I listened to him but didn't take his advice on board and decided, <laughs> you know, I'm going to go for it. Um, so the crowdfunding campaign is is basically a three-month process and the first month is deciding who your platform is going to be. So we decided on Crowdcube. Yeah, um, those guys, yeah. Yeah, so we decided to use Crowdcube and the first month is working on the legals, uh, working out on your price, what you you know, what you're going to give for it, what's the messaging, and, you, and you're basically building up the campaign of of when you're going to go live. The second month is the campaign itself. Um, you, you know, you, you're out there, you're marketing, you, you're raising investment, and then the third month is is basically completion. You know, the time it takes to get the new uh, shareholder subscription documents out there, get signatures, and, and get the money in the bank. So we're, we're in period one um, and we, we, we identified the price that we were going out at. I'd gone out there and, and, and met these investors that I met at Richard Branson's house. And I thought, brilliant, I'm already going to have half the money, hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Um, the night before we went live on Crowdcube, bearing in mind we'd spent a month you know, putting this all together, um, I get a call out of the blue from, from these investors who said they were going to be my cornerstone investors. Yeah. Uh, and they pulled out no. uh, 20. 20 yeah 20 or 12 hours before we were meant to go live and i was just like oh my god what am i gonna do so i ring up matt newin and and matt newin was pretty much 
sailing and was like, I told you so, you know, <laughs> if, if I was you, I'll pull up, you know, I'd pull out. And I said, look, Matt, I just can't do that. The whole business at the moment is geared towards us raising this money and, and us going for it. So again, he gave me his advice and I, I sort of challenged it and went ahead anyway. Um, the first 12 hours of us going live on Crowdcube, we, we managed to raise 340,000 pounds. Wow. Um, all from genuine people who, mm. you know, excuse my French, were just pissed off with, with resale. Yeah. Um, and we managed to, in the end, uh, completely smash our crowdfunding target and we raised 617,000 from 305 new investors. And two, two major investors in that are Scott Fletcher, uh, MBE, who is the owner of ANS Group. Um, and also Vela Technologies PLC, who are uh, who are basically an early stage VC fund who invest in disruptive businesses. So not only is Vibe now in a position where we have you know six hundred thousand pounds new capital into the business, but we've also now got two amazingly incredible investors who, alongside Matt Newin, meant you know we were now in a position where we have the capital we need, we have the team now in place, and there's a need in the marketplace. So over the last twelve months, we've deployed that capital in. In various areas across, you know, building our IP, building our tech stack, and and then building our team. So, yeah, we we spent the last twelve months just executing on the plan that we sold to Crowdcube and and, and the investors. Wow, and a, a question to you: um, given that you're twenty three and you've created this twenty four now, Alex. Twenty four now, Luke. <laughs> <laughs> um, for some people, their their ambition, their goal would be to be where you are now. So my question to you would be, where's your goals now? Where, where do you align your goals? So um, Vibe Tickets today has raised 1.1 million, which has allowed us to get to where we are now, which is you know a marketplace, which is is really good. I think we've got a good user experience. There's a hell of a long way to go. Um, we're, we're currently now trying to build a team that, that will help us go into phase two. Uh, so phase one was all about establishing the product, mm. uh, establishing Vibe as a brand in the marketplace, you know, where do we really fit, et cetera. Now phase two for me is scaling this yeah. uh, operation. And, you know, I, I never shy away from, from my weaknesses. And I think my weaknesses are, you know, lack of expertise. Um, you know, you can't buy experience. You know, you, you can be the most, you know, most aggressive, smartest young person around, but you just can't buy that experience. So unfortunately, we, you know, we, well, it's not unfortunately, it's just correct planning. We're going to have to bring people in that have been there and scaled it. So yeah. the next part of Vibe's development is we're, we're currently in the, right in the middle of our next investment round. Okay. Um, so we're trying to raise a couple of million pounds now, which is going to allow me to scale, scale our operation uh, and bring in the correct people that we need to. And hopefully for me, where that takes us then is to, you know, a, a scheduled series A where we hope to raise anything between 10 and 20 million in Q4 next year, which, which hopefully will be in a position where we've got, you know, a fully integrated uh, tech stack. We've got a team that have demonstrated significant growth over the last 12 months. And now it's simply a case of making the product, you know, multilingual, multi-currency, and we can take the operation and, and scale it in Spain, the rest of Europe, and, and maybe attack the, the US. Um, I think the question that Vibe's going to have along the way is, A, how, how far can the existing management team take it um, before, you know, someone comes in and wants to acquire it? Yeah. Um, and B, where do we want to take it? You know, it's vibe as a brand is very, very strong and, 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 and we're always putting the, the users first. And, you know, what's to stop vibe launching its own payment system? You know, at the moment, we've got people that are chatting and, and people that are wanting to send and receive money. You know, mm. at the moment, why are we outsourcing that to the likes of PayPal? You know, why why yeah. doesn't vibe build its own payment system? And it, yeah, it's just it, looking at that. It's, you know, where do we take vibe? Is vibe going to be the next virgin where it has you know, a number of different verticals that we enter into, or is Vibe going to be, you know, the next platform itself and, and, and just, you know, really take on Ticketmaster. It's, it's going to, it's going to be a challenge. And the thing is, it's, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And, um, especially, you know, it doesn't matter how old you are. I think it's all about, you know, shining a torch on that next 12 months and, 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 and making sure that all, you know, the whole company, the whole operation from technical to marketing to sales and business development is all working towards achieving that goal. Mm. And going back to your point there, like I remember when I spoke to Richard Reed from Innocent uh, a couple of weeks ago and I was saying, you know, you ended up exiting for, for north of 500 million to, to Coca-Cola. Was, was there ever 
an exit strategy in place and he was like no there was never an exit strategy in place but coca-cola came after us every single year and then after 14 years we finally thought Do you know what i think we've this is as far as the current management company can take it um let's see what coca-cola could do and we'll, we'll keep a minority stake is there is there any great great plans for yourself with regards to, to exit strategies or time scales no uh, to answer that no because we're you know we're absolutely all just you know, fixated on, on what we're doing. Um, every single person in this company is just absolutely loves it. And the output we've got compared to resources is just incredible. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, there's a, there's a number of things that have happened over the next, you know, the last three years since founding Vibe. So week six of launch, we had StubHub's um, head of acquisitions uh, over from San Francisco contact us. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've had a number of people get in touch since, uh, people trying to enter the market, et cetera. And yeah. I think it's quite visible to, to anyone, look, you know, on the outside looking in is, is, is the value that Vibe, you know, possesses. You know, we're, we're trying to structure Vibe that not only is Vibe attractive from a, a simple user acquisition point of view, uh, Vibe is not only attractive from an acqui hire point of view because we're, we're taking the best talent from from a number of different companies but also vibe carries what what's called a nuisance value so for every ticket that's sold on vibe tickets it's actually costing the big four around 35 pounds hmm. so you know even if vibe didn't decide to monetize from you know a simple transaction you know if vibe processes a million transactions next year yeah. we're actually costing the industry 35 million i like it now, we, <laughs> if five is growing, you know, if five is growing a hundred percent year on year, you know, the the industry itself is 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 got, is got an opportunity there to, to you know to do one or two things. Let us keep you know keep growing or mm. or, or make an acquisition. Now, yeah. one thing that the the current management team has always said is that you know we, we've got a well, we're firm believers in in something called legacy over currency, and you know I don't want to be known as that young lad who sold out. Um, yeah. For me, it's if Vibe was to sell to anyone, it, 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 we'd have to take it completely seriously that, that, that the Vibe brand, the Vibe team would, would continue and grow. So, you know, would we look at maybe, you know, selling to a Virgin where Virgin could really give us the infrastructure and access to another 10 million customers and, and give Vibe the platform to take it on much further than I could take it, then maybe, mm. you know, would Vibe be willing to sell to someone and, you know, just for the operation to close down because we're, a, you know, a nuisance? Yeah, yeah. No, is no, the answer. You know, it's, no. we, we we don't want to do that. So, and I think you know, Richard Reed's a prime example of that. Is that he he believed in the instance so much and built a brand that had so much value that every year someone wanted to buy it, and mm. it got to a stage for him where, again, which is such a you know an, an admirable thing to do, which was he looked around and said, you know, how far can we take this? And maybe the appetite had gone for for that itself. And you know, he's now set up Jamjar Investments, yeah. looking at the next. The things to do that's right which is awesome yeah yeah and, and also if i one day may you know may fall into that uh, you know investment mm. uh, portfolio team but yeah i think i think exits are it's, it's a funny one because i think you've got to get the right balance of a having enough of a um the x factor that investors are going to want to put money into and there is a clear exit mm. and then also being very very firm of what it is that you're trying to achieve and never let something like someone willing to offer you a check you know deter that because that I know, you know, a number of founders who, and, and this isn't, you know, something wrong is that they're actually building just to sell. Yeah, yeah, likewise, and, yeah. But, but a lot of their business decisions are very, very clear to everyone of why they're making it. <laughs> you know, if, if I was, you know, wanting to sell very soon and, you know, it was a clear time, we'd start monetization now. We, you know, we, we'd start stripping things and just start making it super lean and, and we'd start absolutely going for a clear P&L where Vibe would then be bought on a multiple um, but we're not, you know, Vibe's saying, look, we're, we're, there's, a, there's so much legs in this. In the next five years, Vibe's trying to achieve something. And then, in, you know, who knows in the next 10 years, it may end up turning into something else and we may continue growing it. It's it's just so difficult at this stage to to plan plan for things like that. And uh, anyone who's listening to this that is thinking about setting up a company or is already at the early stages where they think they've got something valuable and something that's tangible is, I'd just say just keep sticking to it. Like, let the exit be the absolute last thing because, you know, it, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you start thinking about the exit now, it, it will change your decision-making process. And you're then sort of building something that you believe the market wants rather than what, what the actual user yeah. wants. And inevitably, that, that's where the, the most valuable companies win because everything they're doing is, is towards fulfilling the need of the user. And I know you're really busy, Luke. I just wanted to finish up with a, with a question based on um, all the awesome mentors that you've had uh privilege to speak to from from richard to matt etc what, what's um what's one of the best pieces of advice that you've that you've had that you think you could relate to somebody who's 
either starting or early stages of scaling scaling their startup? Um, so the best advice I got, uh, and, and all my mentors have actually said it in one way or another, which is Matt Newin, Scott Fletcher, um, Richard Branson, is you know is never undervalue yourself. Um, you know the number one thing that, that that you've got to stick to to be true to if you are going to make it at whatever level is that um, you, you completely and utterly believe in yourself, self belief. Uh, that 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 has to be your idea. That has to be your ability to execute. That has to be your ability to to sell the dream, to raise investment, etc. You know, you're never going to be able to raise investment if you don't believe in yourself. You know, you're never going to be able to launch a product if you don't believe in yourself. So, I think you know that a lot of the time the risk isn't in being able to raise money or the risk isn't you know isn't being able to come up with the idea. I think. 99% of the risk of a startup is in execution. You know, it's, it's in the founder not fully believing what they're trying to do um, because I generally believe that self-belief will get you, you know, 99% of the way there. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, for anyone who's listening to this, it's, you know, really look at yourself in the mirror every single day and go, do I believe what I'm doing here? Because, you know, if you don't, you're going to come up with one hurdle and you might get over that, but then the next hurdle will beat you down because ultimately you don't believe in it. So, yeah, I think self-belief um, and just making sure that the number one asset that you've got to, to anything is you, you know, you're the founder and you've, and you've got to truly believe in it. That's awesome. Thank you very much indeed, Luke. Much appreciated. Sure. So, as you heard really good interview really enjoyed listening to luke's story um loads of takeaways um from a relatively short entrepreneurial career but you know successes and failures already in abundance there and you know biggest one for me uh is the failure of course you know learning from that um whilst his business first business certainly wasn't a failure i.e earning ninety six thousand pounds when he wasn't even a 18 um but he considers his next startup a failure um and that he learned far more from that than from the successes and i totally and utterly um concur with that um having had successes and failures myself and my mind was over expanding too quickly running out of cash you know typical typical startup um bricks and mortar business not not online i had an online business as well but that very much was um and i mean i could i call it a failure my wife says to me it wasn't a failure um because you learned so much from it and she's absolutely right maybe it's just semantics you know what we're calling it but i learned far more about how to build a business from the ground up how to treat your staff um how to work with um senior management, all sorts of lessons, um, loyalty to customers. Yeah, you name it. I, I could, <laughs> I've got learnings from it. So I totally, um, totally agree with, with Luke's um, take on that. Uh, and which moves me on to getting staff to buy into your ideas for the business. Luke says he had five weeks before he ran out of cash um, and his staff bought into that. Um, even though they didn't even know if they were going to get paid. And once again, you know, with, with my epic failure, um, I totally agree with that as well. You know, it's, it's key. If you can't get your staff to, to buy into that, then, you know, they just treat it as a job. They're not going to put in that extra work when you need them to. Uh, they're not going to go that extra mile for you. Um, I've been in both situations, you know, if you need something done, you've got deadlines, you're really reliant as a startup for people, um, for putting in those extra hours, not only going to do it if they, if they buy into to you as a leader and buy into what you're trying to achieve as a business, who you're trying to help, what problem are you trying to solve, um, and value being the third takeaway in this instance. Yeah, and in this case, you know, Luke could have taken the the easy buck by charging people, but it's, you know he's playing the long game clearly, um, which is the right thing to do. Building a community um, of active users, which is far far more valuable than um, getting the quick buck and, and trying to monetize it from day one. Um, yes, there will come a point clearly that 
they need to monetize it because all of the, the money raised is, is going to run out. But the longer you can put that off and build a community, obviously the more value there's going to be because the community is going to be that much bigger. So um, amazing, amazing business. Lo- love the sound of it. You know, the fact that he's been uh, StubHub, um, Ticketmaster, etc., cetera, uh, especially TicketHub, so an interest from day one trying to buy it. Um, clearly shows he's he's onto something and um he speaks very passionately and articulately if you, if you haven't heard him before this is your first exposure to hearing luke um he'd recently been on bbc um leading up to our live event in manchester on the 21st so get yourself over um you know all of the entrepreneurs we have at our events um so passionate about their business and so passionate about entrepreneurship that they will spend the time answering all of the questions grabbing selfies, etc. Um, you know, answering all of your questions, whether that, you know, moves you forward in your business, helps you get unstuck, connects you with somebody who can help you. Um, that's what we're here for. That is the mission. So get yourself over to the Eventbrite page um, on for Startup You to get to one of our Screw It, Just Do It live events. Literally £10. Um, that's all it is. Complimentary Jinx, Manchester Century Library, bang slap in the middle of Manchester on March the 21st and some amazing um, co-speakers in Don McGregor, co-founder of uh, Social Chain and Sasha Atherton from Premier Parents who's launching a female academy in Manchester in London. Um, really exciting times for her as well. So um, love to see you there and connect with you personally. I will be there as well. So screw it. Just do it. Let's all do it. Get over there. Come on. Enjoy. If you'd like the opportunity to attend one of our live events with some of the world's leading entrepreneurs, just go to startupu.co.uk and click on the events calendar. That's startupu with the letter U. From there, you'll be able to see what live events we've got coming up and book a ticket from as little as £5, which includes a complimentary drink and the opportunity to network with like-minded entrepreneurs. Hope to see you soon. If you're an entrepreneur looking for funding, mentoring or support, go to startupu.co.uk. And if you'd like to share your startup story, we'd love to hear from you. Just go to the contact page on startupu.co.uk and we'll be in touch. And if you like this podcast, please subscribe and I'd love it if you left me a review of the show. To connect with me personally, you can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook at Alex Chisnell. Until the next show, remember don't wait. The time will never be just right. Action always beats intention. This show is brought to you by RocketSpark, who make it easy for anyone to build a great-looking website. Each month, RocketSpark offer one lucky listener the opportunity to get a website absolutely free for the next six months to do some in-market testing of a new idea. Just go to rocketspark.com slash screwitjustdoit to enter.